0: The following program originally appeared on Tor.com and is being re-syndicated here by io9.
1: To the Galaxy, hosted by John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kately. Hi, this is Dave, and this is John, and welcome to episode six of Geeks Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, today we'll be talking with author Sherry Priest. Her uh, her first novel was the Southern ghost horror story Four and Twenty Blackbirds. Uh, she followed that up with two sequels. And her most recent work is all set in her clockwork century milieu. Her latest novel is called Bone Shaker. It's a sort of alternate history, civil war, steampunk zombie novel. Uh, sounds really cool. And uh, she's also been involved with George R. R. Martin's Wildcard Shared World Superhero Anthology Series. So we're looking forward to talking with her about that. And uh, if you don't know what steampunk is, we'll just uh, explain quickly, because I, I just have a hunch that's going to come up in this interview. So it's it's hard to s- explain what steampunk is if you don't know what cyberpunk is. So, at the risk of getting off topic, we'll just explain what cyberpunk is really quickly. Um, in the nineteen eighties, as digital technology and computers, you know, personal computers uh, became more common, a lot of authors started thinking about what digital technology was going to mean for the future and for science fiction. A couple well known examples are William Gibson's Neuromancer and Bruce Sterling's anthology Mirror Shades. Um, sort of took digital technology and virtual reality and drugs and a kind of anti-establishment viewpoint and, uh, featured bikers and hackers and, and people like that. And, and so all this was sort of, uh, fell under the cyberpunk label. So that was, you know, sort of a well-known term to anyone who was reading uh, or writing uh, science fiction at the time. And so, uh, in the the late '80s, uh, the author K. W. Jeter was looking for a label to describe the work of him and his friends Tim Powers and James Blaylock, who were all kind of writing stories set in the 19th century. And so the term he came up with, kind of jokingly, was steampunk, because the idea was that it was kind of like cyberpunk, except instead of cyber technology, it was going to be steam-powered technology. Um, and actually, there there was some crossover between the cyberpunk writers and the steampunk writers. So, like William Gibson and Bruce Sterling collaborated on a novel called *The Difference Engine*, which is an alternate history in which Charles Babbage succeeds in creating a computer uh, in the in the 19th century, not using electricity but just using uh, you know mechanical power. And uh, and so 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 steampunk so the steampunk subgenre tends to involve. You know, kind of 19th century technology and the Victorian aesthetic and, uh, you know, steam power used to do kind of amazing improbable things like computers and giant robots and airships and, and all sorts of things like that. Um, I
2: think the I think the easiest shorthand for people who not not familiar with steampunk is probably the that old TV show uh, Wild Wild West. It's is sort of like the probably the most uh, obvious example of of steampunk that had infiltrated the the mass media before uh, science fiction writers started writing about it in uh, in in droves.
1: Yeah, I was just about to mention you know the Wild Wild West TV series, and they made a movie out of it with Will, you know, starring Will Smith. And uh, unfortunately, that <laughs> and the other best-known example of steampunk in pop culture, which is the, the movie adaptation of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, are not that great, but most people are probably familiar with them and can kind of get an image of, you know, of, of what the basic idea is. So just imagine that kind of thing, except done well, and uh, that's, <laughs> that's uh, what steampunk is. Um, but I'm sure Sherry Priest will have a lot more to say about, about the subject, so uh, let's get,
2: get to our interview. Okay, so let's get Sherry on the phone.
0: Hello?
2: Hi, this is Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy.
0: Hi, how are you doing?
2: Good. So uh, why don't we get started with a little bit of background. Um, you're you're a self-described army brat. What was that like growing up?
0: Uh, it was not actually the typical army brat experience because my, my parents were divorced and I lived with my mother who was not military. Um, my father and stepmother were. But I spent every summer with them and every other Christmas and every other Thanksgiving and it was, you know pretty much every couple of years. It was some new, exciting place. But uh my mother also moved every two or three years because of her profession. She was a teacher in um, a private Christian school. And I'm, I'm talking like little one-room schoolhouse stuff. And, and they like to move their teachers every few years because when you only have one teacher, the students will start to take on the strengths and weaknesses of that teacher. You know what I mean? So I moved every two or three years with my mom. And then my dad moved every two or three years. And... uh When I was a teenager, I went to go live with my dad, and then I gave up on all of that and just went and moved into a dormitory and (laughs) never went home again.
2: (laughs) Was that good preparation for being a writer?
0: Yeah, in some ways, sure. I I did a lot of traveling when I was young, Um, kind of ended up a little bit of everywhere. My father loves to travel anyway, so every uh, summer we, we usually would take these big, you know, he'd save up all his leave. And I remember he was stationed in Denver for a while, and we took half the summer once and hit all the big square states. and. I do it's just neat. You find a lot of interesting places, and you meet a lot of interesting people, and then you steal them for later for your fiction.
2: Hmm. Uh, did you find that there's still a lot of regional variation in America, or did it still, did it just seem pretty much the same thing wherever you went?
0: <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, it's hard to say back then, when I was a kid and wasn't quite paying so much attention, but as someone who just moved to the Pacific Northwest from Tennessee, I can tell you there is, in fact, quite a lot of regional variance. And I also, at one point, moved from downtown Orlando to um, a little place outside a town called Gustin, Kentucky, when my dad was stationed at Fort Knox. That was also quite a bit of a, a little bit of a culture surprise, but I mean, yeah, there's, there's still an awful lot of regional variants, and, and sometimes it's really interesting, and, and I, uh, I, I try to work very hard to get a good, solid sense of place in all of my fiction, and I think I, I don't know I, I think that's still possible I think that's still something that's very interesting to make something a, a very specific part of a very specific place
1: So you you've said that as a teenager you were a goth Um Yeah <laughs> How how did you get into that scene and and what's your impression of it now and would you encourage other kids to go goth
0: I don't know I mean it was it was kind of tricky for me in Florida <laughs> Um you know when you're blonde and have a tan it's it's uh it's very hard to be, be dark and sinister, uh, when you're, you know, dating surfers and you live in Orlando and whatever. Um, I don't know. I, I, mostly, I really liked the music and I had some friends who were into it and, uh, you know, I just, I was in it for the clothes, I think at a certain point. And I ended up going away. As I said, I lived in a dormitory for, well, I lived in a couple different dormitories over a span of about five years when I was away in a private Christian school. And so you kind of have to let go of it then because they wouldn't let us wear any jewelry. You couldn't even wear, you know, dark nail polish or anything. So uh, I kind of came back to it again in my early 20s, and I jokingly call that my late Gothic revival. <laughs> but uh, I don't know, it's fun. And in and, and Seattle in particular, where I've now lived, I guess, for about four years, uh, there's actually a pretty solid goth scene here. And... You know, if if you move a long way and maybe you don't know anybody where you are, you start following or falling back into those old groups and old patterns. And some people start going to church again. Some people, you know, find some civic club or some charity. And I just found the golf bar.
1: So, how did you get into fantasy and science fiction?
0: Oh gosh, I've always been into it. Um, probably uh, this will sound awful, and I, I tell this story from time to time, but it's, it's true. Uh, my mother's family. I, I was raised in. It is only a slight exaggeration to call it an eschatological cult, Uh where Jesus is coming back any moment. They were kind of—technically, um, I was raised Seventh-day Adventist, but my mom's kind of right on the fringe of what's considered acceptable and normal even for them, and they're a weird group to start with. So, she was like Third-day Adventist? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was like really crazy. <laughs> it, it, it's all, it's hard to articulate now, and when I talk about it now, people are kind of, wow, that was really, really strange. Well, you know, when you're a kid, everything's normal, so. But my first great, tremendous, overriding fear, I remember being about three or four years old, around the time my parents were starting to divorce, was my mother telling me, well, you know, Jesus is going to come back in day now, and we're all going to go to heaven, but you can't take your dog, and your dad's probably not going to be oh, a no. And, I mean, so you get the idea that at any moment, the sky's going to open and the world's going to end. And I remember being a little tiny kid and thinking that was the most horrifying thing. But but it got me interested in things that are frightening and things that are scary. And I got into horror first. And obviously, my mother would not let any of this stuff in the house. Like, I wasn't even allowed to watch Super Friends, which was, uh, a <laughs> we're talking like late 70s, early 80s here, you know, the cartoons of Superman and Wonder Woman and all that. I mean, because that looked like magic, and we're not allowed to have any of that. I couldn't watch Scooby-Doo, because there are ghosts in that, and ghosts, as we all know are merely, you know, minions of Satan, so that's bad. Hmm. And uh, my dad figured out that I like mysteries and scary things, so he took me to the library and checked out some Nancy Drew books for me and said, you better hide these from your mom. (laughs) So I did, but she found them, and she threw them away, and she made me pay for them out of my allowance because I should have known better than to invite the presence of the devil into her home. Wow. So, <laughs> right. So when these things are so taboo and so prohibited, I mean, obviously it was all I wanted, you know, like, well, what's so special about that that I can't have it? And and like I said, my dad figured this out, and my mother had this really strange work around, and I realize this isn't going to make any sense, but here you go. If an author was dead, they were okay. Hmm. Like, if they're dead, it's literature. So my dad starts giving me, like, he gave me the Edgar Allan Poe compendium, you know, that big brick of a thing that'll sink a canoe. And, uh, the Sherlock Holmes anthology and, and some H.P. Lovecraft and, and, and he's flipping me all this stuff when I'm 10, 11, 12 years old, you know, and my mom's like, well, this looks like literature. It's hardback and it's very small print. Okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> when did you sort of stop believing that the world was going to end at any moment?
0: I, I remember trying to have those conversations with, with my mom and with my dad later too. Like, well, how do we know what we believe is right? How do we know that that we're right and everybody else is wrong? And, well, my mother's like, well, the Bible tells us, you know, blah, 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 blah. And my dad's like, well, you don't. <laughs> That's all. You just don't. And when I was about 15, I got into some trouble. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I have a little bit of a juvenile record, but it's not anything big or terrible. I got into some trouble, and I ended up kind of in this little adolescent facility run by the Adventists. That was also a lot of fun. And my dad got me out and I went to go live with him. And, and kind of that was that was the break. Just this understanding that this is just an institution, this is just a facility, this this entire religion. <laughs> and and maybe everybody's, I don't know. And and I've kind of made my peace with religion in my old age, but you know, for a very long time it was something that I had a great deal of resentment towards.
1: So uh, what sort of early writing did you do and how did you break into print?
0: <laughs> um, I think the first novel I ever tried to write Oh, God help me. It was called Rain of the Desert Snow, and it was spelled R-E-I-G-N. And I was 12 years old, and I was writing this novel about me and my cousins fighting drug dealers in Egypt. And <laughs> I got like 300 pages on the thing, and, and then the desk died, and I was inconsolable for about a week, and then I started writing something else, you know. I guess I wrote about five or six books, starting when I was about 12. And when I was finally in my twenties, After about 10 years, you know, you finally start to kind of build up to, at least when you start that young anyway. And I I started fiddling around with this new project called 4 and 20 Blackbirds. At at the time, I was a full-time grad student working three jobs, and one of those jobs had me as the, uh, I was the assistant director of a school-age childcare program, kind of a before and after school thing. And I I tell you now, there's nothing on earth quite so creepy as small children.
2: I mean, they're hilarious.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I'm working with these little kids all day, and, and, and so my first horror novel kind of grew out of that. And I started working with it, and I was fiddling with it. I do a chapter or two here and there, and I had a live journal, that I hadn't really had for very long. This was, I guess, maybe back in maybe 2002, and I started posting chapters online, kind of here and there. And, and, and eventually, this, this editor contacts me, and he's an editor for a micropress in Georgia. And uh, they called me up and invited me down to Atlanta and offered me a contract for the book. And then things went badly. <laughs> uh, then the publisher fired that editor, which left me suddenly with no crazy buffer between me and him. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, to make a very long story very short, I received a $300 advance from this micropress, and I have never seen another dime. And I don't know how many books were printed because they won't tell me. And uh, for a long time, the publisher claimed that I owed him money, and mm. it kind of turned into this really big mess. And coincidentally enough, and strangely enough, about a year before, these people had contacted me. I'd pulled together a proposal and a uh, you know pitch and some sample content, and I had sent it to Tor, and and a handful of other places too. And I've gotten a form of rejection, and you know you pick up the pieces of your shattered life and you move on. No big thing, but. About a year, year and a half later, I guess I get this email from someone named Liz Garinsky who was cleaning out somebody's office at Tor and had found my packet underneath somebody's desk. And she was like, "I hope you're still at this email address because your phone number's changed." And I don't, and I had actually moved. And so at that point, and this is still my editor, by the way, she's pretty awesome. But at that point, we got talking about it, and my then agent was a retired contract lawyer, and he effectively got the rights back from Micropress and then we did a new edition that was released through Tor and that was the start of my actual publishing experience right there. I just, I, I tend to pretend that the whole thing in Georgia just never happened because mm. it was such a mess and that publisher still likes to run around bad mouthing me from time to time uh, or or claiming that he discovered me and that all of my success is due to him mm. e- e- even though it wasn't him, it was his editor, but you know never mind <laughs> facts who needs them right
1: so uh so i'm guessing you would not encourage aspiring writers to follow your uh experience
0: well you know, there are a lot of really great independent presses and and as i have become acutely aware of since i, I work for subterranean right now as a matter of fact uh, in an editorial capacity and uh there's nightshade books and there's I mean, just, just all kinds of really, really great independent presses. I just happened to fall in with one that wasn't. I mean, you, you really have to do your homework. This uh this company looked good on paper. They even had a book that had been nominated for a bunch of awards and had gotten a lot of good critical attention. And I thought, well, this will be great. You know, this will be my foot in the door. And it you know, it it did at least partially lead to better things. So I can't say that I regret it. But it was a very stressful couple of years
1: so um when you sold your first novel did you uh do anything crazy to celebrate like go out and get tattooed or anything like that
0: actually i did <laughs> um and either you knew that and you're bringing that up <laughs> or, or that was a lucky guess i uh, know i did i uh, actually the only thing that i uh, never did just because i was afraid to do it that i had wanted to do was get a tattoo and so the day that the first edition the micro press edition went to press i, I went and got my first tattoo and it is Greek, and it's the first part of John one one, and it says, "In the beginning was the Word." It's across my back, and uh, like I said, I've, I've made my peace with religion, and I thought that for an amateur theologian and and a writer, it was a very good quote. So,
1: what is what do you mean by amateur theologian?
0: Uh, well, I, I find religion uh, just amazingly interesting, and and uh, although I claim no no affiliation at this time, I. I mean, I, I spent 16 years in parochial school, and, and you come out of that with a certain context. And weirdly, I found it very useful going into literature, going into rhetoric, which is what my master's degree is in, because so much of this, the things that people have referenced, especially when you talk English in the last five or 600 years, is very heavily based in religion. I have a kind of a vast and crazy reference library for it, but mostly I just find it very, very interesting. I'm very interested in the things that other people believe. And why they believe them, which uh, has gotten me into trouble with more than a few Christians lately.
1: <laughs> but. What do you mean trouble? Like what kind of trouble?
0: Oh, yeah, people pick fights with you online, and 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 but the, the, or people want to start conversations. We we have a recently had some street preachers around in in my neck of the woods. People hanging out of coffee shops trying to draw people into conversation, and I'm like, you really don't want to talk to me about this. I probably know more than you do, and I will just make you mad. <laughs> You know, and obviously when I go home to my mom, it, there's, there's always a little tension there where I have to kind of you know, dress up for it again and go to church just to kind of keep the peace and just kind of play along for a little bit because it's not worth making that stink.
1: Did your mom read your novels?
0: Oh, no, 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 no. She won't even own them. I gave her the first couple of them, and she hid them on a shelf between some Bibles and some L. N. G. White books. Uh, L. N. G. G. White for people who aren't Adventists. and are not familiar with her. Ellen G. White was a Victorian girl who got hit on the head with a rock and then started hearing God talking to her. And she wrote a whole bunch of, you know, sermons and treatises and 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 uh, yeah, all kinds of things. But but her writings were considered effectively holy by the church. So, yeah, but no, my stuff, my mother. She's like, well, I just you know, you know, I don't read that kind of thing. I don't know why you just don't write like, some, you know, nice books. I don't know why you um. have to write these things. So. <laughs> So she won't read them and furthermore she won't let anyone else in the family have them either so like my relatives who do have them and have read them have to kind of do it out of her sight <laughs> and and it, and when you tell people about it now uh, sometimes I can't, I can't believe you ever lived like that well you know you just get used to it no caffeine no chocolate oh and they and in addition to that kind of thing they keep the jewish health laws no pork no shellfish you know all that stuff so mm-hmm.
2: Oh, I was going to say, so you moved to Seattle where you have to drink coffee like all the time, right? I mean, isn't that the role?
0: Well, my husband's a roaster, so. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I haven't lived by any of those particular rules for a very long time myself, but I haven't been a, bit of, not a huge coffee fan. Mm. I like my husband's coffee. It's great, but it's, yeah, you know, I'm more of a tea girl myself.
2: So what's the Seattle Underground? In
0: 1889, I believe, there was a terrible fire that effectively burned the city down. And when they decided to rebuild the city, they wanted to regrade it because it was built on a tidal mud flat, and they didn't have a sewage system. They didn't have any drainage system. They're like, well, this is our opportunity to rebuild this city with all the modern things that we need. So the city officials said, well, we'll just regrade everything. We'll tear down this hill. We'll take all the dirt. We'll lift the city up. It'll be great. But the people who own the businesses downtown said, great, how long will that take? And they said, 10 to 12 years. And the people who, yeah, and the people who own the businesses were like, yeah, well, we got to eat. So they started building anyway. And it actually took 20 or 30 years to complete this entire project. So effectively what happened was the city owned the streets. So the city lifted the streets up off of street level while the businesses were all built at street level, the original street level. So what happened was, when this finally came to completion, they, they got to where the second floor of most of these buildings became the first floor and they paved up to that door. They just cut in new doors, and, and there you go. So you have an entire first floor for blocks and blocks and blocks of the city that's still completely underground. Hmm. And you know, like during World War I, and uh, kind of around the turn of the century, it was used for drugs and opium dens and prostitution and all kinds of stuff. And sometime, I believe, around World War II, they closed them all together because of were rats down there, and they were afraid of you know, basically plague. So it was completely shut down. Nobody was allowed to go there. And sometime in the 60s, a guy named Bill Spidell found out that they were going to tear down a bunch of the old buildings in Pioneer Square, which is that old part of town. It kind of become a bad part of the city where you just didn't go. And and in the name of civic development, they were going to tear it all down and pave it or whatever. And this guy said, no, you know what, this this is your history. You ought to come and take a look at this. Let's get everybody interested. So he put an ad in the paper saying, come meet me on Pioneer Square and I'll take you downstairs and show you the underground. And he thinks maybe 10 or 15 people are going to show up, and like hundreds of people showed up. <laughs> so we passed around a hat, <laughs> and uh, the, that was, I think, in, I want to say 67, I'm not sure, sixty-seven, sixty-nine, 69. And the tours have been running ever since. They run them several times a day, and you pay a little fee that basically covers the rental fee for going underneath all of these buildings, which are presently in use. And uh, they take you on a two-hour tour.
2: And so is, uh, is the Seattle Underground featured in any of your work?
0: Uh, it kind of in Bone Shaker. It's it's a different sort of underground. There's there's a different disaster that destroys the city differently, but the results are similar. Where they end up with with a field underground where people live, but uh, it's it's not not quite as tidy <laughs> as the real thing.
2: Tell us a bit more about Bone uh, What's it about?
0: Well, it's it's kind of my alternate history, steampunk zombie uh, <laughs> version of Seattle. It's 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 a fun alternate history universe, and, and I could spend all day explaining it. And it's got to do with you know the Civil War running for 20 years, and and a terrible natural disaster, and blah blah blah. But, but at the end of the day, it's a story about a runaway boy and his mother who risks everything to go inside a walled city full of zombies to save him.
2: Uh, so so that book uh, sort of combines two of your passions, I think, right? Steampunk and zombies. What are some of your favorite examples of steampunk and zombie literature and or uh, film, et cetera?
0: Oh gosh, Um well, I I guess probably the first I ever really loved was The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, not the movie. Not the movie. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the comics. And, uh, I, I got started on those and loved them. And, and for zombie stuff, I've gotta say World War Z by Max Brooks. I mean, it's just amazing. And, uh, I love The Dawn of the Dead remake. I love, I love video games. I love Resident Evil and, uh, that whole franchise. And Silent Hill kinda has quasi-zombies in it. And I love all of those too. Um. Oh, I wanna think of some other franchise that was really obvious that I'm missing. Bioshock's uh aren't really they're not really zombies, but they might as well be. They're violent, they attack you, they try to kill you, and they're kinda of mindless. And <laughs> oh, and the twenty eight days later franchise, that's also pretty good. And Zombie Land, which was, was funny as hell. I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I would like to think that the book isn't actually about the zombies and it's something that people bring up in reviews every now and again, either to uh, either in praise or detriment, people will be like, well, I was kind of afraid this was just going to be a zombie bus, but the zombies aren't really very important, and that's really cool. Or, mm. I wanted more zombies. This sucks. tons <laughs> of zombies. So, you know, you just can't please everybody.
1: No, zombie fans are very hard to please, as John and I have yeah. discovered with, with The Living Dead. <laughs> um,
0: it's a wonderful anthology, though. Gosh. Oh, gosh. Thank you. Thank you. I <laughs> just saying. <laughs> Especially
2: that story by David Bar kirtley
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that was awesome.
1: <laughs> okay, so, uh, I mean, you mentioned uh, video games. Do you have any other geeky hobbies?
0: Uh, I, you know, I have fewer and fewer as I get older, and it's not, you know, any particular knobbery or anything I'm, i just don't have the time anymore i used to play a lot of a uh, well <laughs> just between me and you uh, i used to larp <laughs> i used to play vampire the masquerade all the time like three weekends out of the month you know uh again i was in it for the clothes uh,
1: could you could you talk more about your interest in clothes you you mentioned that
0: <laughs> oh i don't know what to say about it i I've, yeah i've always been a little bit of a clothes horse and i love victorian clothes In person and in real life, I'm I'm kind of, well, obviously I I talk a lot and I talk very fast and I'm a little frenetic and and a little disorganized, but but I really like the restraint of the Victorian stuff and and I feel like that's dressing up for me, you know, kind of putting on a persona that is different from myself. And I have an assortment of corsets that I really enjoy and some bustles. I I, I love costumery and theatricality and, and, and that works very, very well with steampunk.
1: Okay, so uh, George R. R. Martin recruited you to be part of the team of writers working on his Wild Card series. Uh, What's that collaborative process been like?
0: (laughs) Um, She asked me at just the right time. I have just gotten that off my plate a couple days ago. Um, First of all, I mean, it was just immensely flattering. I I didn't know what to do with myself. I got a package in the mail one day uh, from an address I didn't recognize in the Southwest, and I opened it up, and it was one of the new wild card books towards kind of doing a new run on some different ones and, an, and a letter from George R. R. Martin saying, Hey, you, <laughs> would you like to be involved in this? And once my hand stopped flapping, you know, I emailed him and said, yes, please. What, what do I do? And then about a year later, cause it took a while, he uh, contacted me and said, I'd like you to pitch some characters. I'd like you to you know, kind of pitch some scenarios. Let's see what you got. And I did. And the first project I was able to work on, at the moment, Tor has released three new Wild Card books. It's uh, *Suicide Kings*, *Bust Flush*, and um, *Inside Straight*. Oh, but that's wrong order. But those are the three books. And there's going to be one that's unrelated to those coming out. I'm uh, not entirely certain when, to tell you the truth. I think early next year. And that is completely unrelated to those, but also modern. Because one of the things he was telling me, he's like, look, you know, this got started 25, 30 years ago. These characters are on social security. We, <laughs> we need some new people. We need some younger people in this franchise. But the first book I got in on is Fort Freak, and it is a noir police procedural about a 61-year-old cop in New York who's about to be forced into retirement. And there's one case that comes back to Hanum that he has to solve before he retires. Basically, the way it's going to work is that's the frame story, and then there's nine novellas that go in the middle of the book. It's kind of a mosaic piece. And each of the novellas has some clues and, you know, that kind of thing. So well we're pitching our specifics he's like now you newer people I don't expect you to you know go out for the frame story or anything but I want to see how you want to fit this in but I got a really great idea for the frame story <laughs> so I started bothering him about it I was like <laughs> what about this and and okay well here's what I like about this and here's what I don't okay so I'd go back and rewrite it and try it again <laughs> and after about four or five pitches he was like okay stop don't send this to me anymore I'm like okay I'm really sorry he's like no 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 we're going to use it <laughs> um, and you're going to have to write it <laughs> And I nearly had a heart attack. But uh, it's been it's been several Sundays spending all afternoon on the phone with George and the legal pad. And I have an entire hanging file system with all the old characters and all their bios and trying to go through all the old books because I hadn't read them all. And uh, just doing this crash course in this 30-year-old superhero universe in order to write with all these characters that that, that aren't mine. And it was one of the toughest things I've ever done. And, and then right around Christmas, he gets back to me after I'd handed in the first draft a few months before. And uh, he's like, okay, uh, I need a new draft. I need the second draft um, by January 15th. He told hmm. me at Christmas while I'm out at, in Kentucky at my dad's. i was <laughs> like, okay. But then he accompanies it with 15 pages of notes. Single space type. I've never gotten an editorial letter like that on anything I've ever done, much less a thirty-two thousand word piece. <laughs> so I ended up rewriting about fourteen thousand words of it and I, I mean, just just killing myself trying to pull everything together and get everything he wants in there and and, and obviously I don't know yet how it's been received, but I, I certainly hope he likes it. And I feel like the whole experience has kind of been like a leveling up <laughs> like, I could not have done this. <laughs> but he's And he doesn't do a lot of hand-holding. He just tells you what he likes and what he doesn't like and it, and expects you to fix it. I'm like, okay, I can do that. Whatever you want. Tell me what you want. I'll do it. And it's just been kind of a very different experience for me, but, but really, really great. And I'm thrilled, silly, to be included in it.
1: Uh, so you're a big proponent of Dragon Con? Oh, about... I love
0: Dragon Con. Uh, Dragon Con is special to me because I'm, I'm from the Southeast and I don't live there anymore. So it's kind of my one week a year to go home. And it's it's kind of like going back into the high school cafeteria. I mean, I know everybody there. I know half the people who that work there. That sounds it.
1: like my worst nightmare.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. It's, <laughs> and it is a big convention. It's very crowded. And, and a lot of people either love it or hate it. But but I love it. And the, the reasons that I love it may, you know, your mileage may vary.
1: Uh, so what are you working on now and what should readers be watching for?
0: Oh, Right now, um, I'm actually taking a little bit of a breather, and I do mean a little bit of a breather. I just, on the 15th, handed in that thing for George, and that had been eating my life for about three weeks. Um, however, I- I'm working on pitching two more Clockwork Century novels that are kind of set in the same universe as Bone Shaker, and I have a young adult project M.A. may chase down, and uh, and a uh, unrelated steampunk project that I want to put together. But as for what's actually coming out soon. Actually, the pre-orders for Clementine were just announced today. Clementine is is a book that Subterranean is doing. It's a novella, uh, due largely to the first refusal clause the tour. But um, so we have this, this novella called Clementine that's kind of a sequel to Bone Shaker. It's um, it's it's well, let me put it this way: if you've read the book, there's a character in there named Crog and Haney, and he's he's a pirate and a, and a and a dirigible captain. And at the end of Bone Shaker, something very important is taken from him and Clementine is the story of him going and getting it back so it's not really a direct sequel he's not one of the main characters in Bone Shaker but I really really liked him and I wanted I, I thought he got the short end of the stick in that book so I wanted to fix it but that will actually be available in, at the end of May and the formal sequel also from Tor anyway is called Dreadnought and I believe that will be out sometime in the fall um, still not real sure about that yet and it's it's kind of like Clementine it's not a direct sequel it's just the one that comes out from the same company that published Bone Shaker, but but it has some of the same people in it. There's a character in Bone Shaker named Jeremiah Swackhammer, which is a name I actually stole off of local television. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but <laughs> Dreadnought is about his daughter, um, coming she lives back east in, in Richmond and her journey to come meet him at the end of uh at the end of Bone Shaker something happens to him too and he's he sends for her, he tries to contact her and he hasn't seen her in years. But it's about her trip coming out west to, to find him. So it's got some of the same people, and there's some of the same touchstones, both of these books. But you won't need to have read Bone Shaker to, to plug into them, at least that, that was the intention.
1: And I understand you also steal names off of tombstones?
0: Oh, totally, yeah. <laughs> I actually live down the street from this place called Lakeview Cemetery. And uh, back around the turn of the century, when property values in Seattle kind of started to go skyrocketing a little bit, they decided to move all the old Pioneer cemeteries. We just relocated them up to where I live on this hill. Now they all live in Lakeview Cemetery. So the old 19th century graves used to be downtown. They're now up here. And I, I'll just take a notebook and go wandering around the thing and just like, oh, what an awesome name. I'm going to write that down. But no, I was watching the local news, and somebody from the Washington Department of Transportation was on TV talking about some construction work. And his name was actually Jedediah Swackhammer, I think. (laughs) And I saw that on the screen. I'm like, I need a pen. (laughs) I need a pen. I have to save that. (laughs) But I decided it was too many consonants, so he turned into Jeremiah Swackhammer. So Jedediah Swackhammer, if you ever hear this, you're you're awesome.
1: So do you have any short stories coming out, say, in any zombie anthologies?
0: (laughs) Say, in any zombie anthologies? Well, I hear... (laughs) There's going to be a follow-up to The Living Dead, and um, I wrote a Clockwork Century story for that called Reluctance, but I I, I don't know any of the actual publication details on that, so you may have to fill that in. Oh, and, and oh, Oh, go ahead, I'm sorry.
2: I was just going to say, it's coming out in uh, September from Nightshade Books.
0: Sweet. But I also did a novelette, I suppose we call it, it's about 8 or 10,000 words, called *Tanglefoot*, also set in this universe that has been picked up for the Steampunk, two, uh, Steampunk Reloaded by N. and Jeff Vandermeer. Oh, 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 but Bill will kill me if I don't <laughs> say. Uh, <laughs> well, for Retro Pulp, uh, there was Retro Pulp Adventures, the Joe Lansdale anthology, a couple years ago. There's a follow-up called Son of Retro Pulp, and I do have a story in there called The Catastrophe Box.
1: Okay, great. So uh, everybody definitely check those out. And Sherry Priest, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy.
0: Well, thank you so much for having me.
1: And that was our interview. Uh, so thanks so much to Sherry for joining us on the show. That was uh, that was pretty crazy. Uh, <laughs> all that stuff about her her childhood, being raised in an eschatological cult, as she put it. Although easy for her to say. Yeah, it sounds that sounds pretty horrible. Although at first I thought she said a scatological cult, <laughs> and that actually yeah. sounds even worse. <laughs> although, I agree. Uh, although actually, although- John. What do an eschatological cult and a scatological cult have in common? Uh, I don't know. I gave up. They're both obsessed with bullshit.
2: <laughs> <Ba-dum>.
1: <laughs> Thanks. Did I'll be here. You just heard. make that up. Are you kidding? I, I spent all morning on that. <laughs> but thank you. What do you mean it's a
2: Dave Kurtley original? Is what I mean. <laughs> oh, you mean nice. did I
1: did I steal it from somewhere? No, I made that. Yeah. that was all me, baby.
2: All right. Uh, pretty good but you know when she mentioned how she got into a little trouble as a teenager i, I was gonna say um now, now i assume that the little trouble that she got into was attempted murder of some contemporary author that she really wanted to read you know because if she killed them then uh it would be okay <laughs> for her to read them according to her mother's uh her mother's rules
1: yeah she's like it was it was just a little trouble it was just attempted murder no <laughs> one actually lost their lives don't freak out All right, so, but no, like, when she was talking about all that stuff, it was reminding me of how, you know, when I was growing up, there was this kid I was friends with, and his mom was kind of like that. The the thing that really sticks in my mind is she wouldn't let him play Legend of Zelda, Mm -hmm. because, you know, in Legend of Zelda, you go into these underground mazes and fight monsters, and she's Mm -hmm. like, that's just like hell. (laughs) Uh, I always felt so bad for this kid. You know, he... uh. You know, see so he, he and I we used to just, you know, shoot baskets in my driveway and, and argue about evolution and stuff like that. Oh, good times. But but you know, going to his house it was serious. It was like you know, sometimes he'd be like, Hey you want to come over to my house? And I'd be like, Oh man, do I have to? You know? And it was it was serious. It was like spending the afternoon in North Korea, you know. It was like they had they had like this one of those V chip kind of things on their T V so they only got three channels and 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 I didn't know all of the all the rules and stuff. Until so every once in a while, I would just make some innocent comment and, and, and he and his his sister would kind of like freak out and be like, no, no, don't say that. Mm-hmm. And his mom would kind of glare at us in from the kitchen and, and they're like, no, he didn't mean it. You know, don't don't make him leave. And it was seriously, it was like, you know, everything was controlled. Every all your sources of information were controlled. You couldn't say you couldn't protest. You couldn't say anything against great leader. You know, just you just had to praise great leader with everything you said. You know? <laughs> You know, you could only sort of mouth orthodox-approved slogans and stuff. And sounds <laughs> like just... kind of an awesome science fiction story. Yeah, but no, no, but but you would just you know walk out of the house and just breathe a sigh of relief. You're like, oh, I can actually be myself now. And you know, the, they they moved away when when we were still uh, like in in middle school or high school. So I don't know whatever happened to him. I hope he uh, escaped from that environment, like 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 Sherry did. I was thinking that you know Sherry is sort of an inspirational story for all all the kids out there who. uh you know, if there are kids out there who have parents like that, you know, mm. when you're listening to the show, like, A, you're going to hell. Mm-hmm. Um, but but B, Obviously. you know, you should you should take heart from, from Sherry's story and just think that someday you'll escape. And then you can move to the opposite side of the continent and dress however you want and get as many tattoos and piercings. Just, you know, knock yourself out and subsist on a diet entirely of mocha latte, shrimp cocktails, <laughs> if you feel like it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, hang in there, kids. Okay, and so you know, Sherry was talking about *League of Extraordinary Gentlemen*, uh, which you know, in the intro, we mentioned the the movie adaptation. But this was a graphic novel by Alan Moore, who uh, is is best known for doing just a lot of a really great work: uh, *Watchmen* and *V for Vendetta* and *From Hell*. So he, so he did this League of Extraordinary Gentlemen uh, comic book series where it's all sort of characters from Victorian literature initially. So you've got Mina Harker from Bram Stoker's Dracula, and you've got H.G. Wells's Invisible Man and Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll slash Mr. Hyde and H. Ryder Haggard's uh, Alan Quatermain, uh, And they all sort of go on adventures but actually it was it was interesting, you know I was last uh, or earlier we were talking about how dumb the Martians are in uh, H. G. Wells's War of the Worlds, you know, because they just come to earth and then they all just die of the common cold, and shouldn't they have seen that one coming? <laughs> but I was thinking actually, after we were talking about that that maybe you know who knows what Martian politics is like? And so I was kind of imagining you know, maybe there was like an election coming up, and so they just had to start a war really quick. And so I can kind of imagine, like all the Martian scientists saying, "We should really figure out some way for our soldiers to breathe once they get to Earth." <laughs> and uh, you know, the Martian political leadership is just like, you know, you go to war with the tripods that you have. And <laughs> you know, why do you hate Mars? And then they all just went off and yeah, yeah. without adequate preparation. But actually, in uh, *League of Extraordinary Gentlemen*, there's it turns out there's actually a. Uh, uh, an interesting explanation for that, because you know he incorporates that Wells's uh, mm. War of the Worlds into the the plot. Okay, yeah, So, so in in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, it turns out that the aliens actually died because MI5 launches a hybrid bacteria made up of anthrax and streptococcus, and that's actually what kills the aliens. And mm. then they, uh, but it actually it kills a lot of uh, people too. And so they make up a cover story that the aliens had died from the common cold. But, you know, in the uh, in the intro also, we were talking about how steampunk, the term, was coined to describe the work of uh, K.W. Jeter, James Blaylock, and Tim Powers, uh, particularly Tim Powers' novel, The Anubis Gates. And that's one of my favorite books, so I just wanted to talk about that a little bit, because this is definitely one that people should check out. So, so in The Anubis Gates, there's a, an English professor named Brendan Doyle, and he's approached by a wealthy guy named Darrow who has figured out how to travel through time. And he's uh, assembled a bunch of millionaires who all want to travel back and see Samuel Taylor Coleridge give a lecture. And so he wants this English professor to come along kind of as a tour guide and to give a lecture and explain uh, some of the history and things to, to his tourists. So this English professor agrees and he goes along. But then on this jaunt into the past, he gets attacked by a stranger and knocked out. And he wakes up and the rest of the party has gone back to the back to his own time and he's stuck in London in the past. and And then it turns out that the this this tourist expedition that the that this rich guy had had been organizing was just a preliminary thing and that he was actually trying to get enough money to set up a depilatory parlor because he's trying to at- attract a, a historical character named dog-faced Joe, who's a, a werewolf uh, who can swap bodies. But he can't ever leave his werewolfism, right, his lycanthropy like, behind. And so he can swap bodies with people, but then he's always still a werewolf and he starts growing hair after a while, so he could really use a depilatory parlor. <laughs> and uh, so it's just it's just the the this style of writing is described as gonzo fantasy because it's just there's like there's like Egyptian sorcerers and werewolves and little sort of fairies who fly around in eggshells and time travel and just, just sort of all sort of all these different things all thrown together. And you know, there's a school of thought in in writing fantasy and science fiction that you should should just write about one speculative element at a time. That one thing should be changed, and then you examine the consequences of that. And then if there's more than one speculative element, that it uh, it overwhelms the the story. And and this this book is written with the complete opposite, <laughs> the complete opposite philosophy. There's you know, I, th- I think uh, Tim Powers said that his method for writing a, a a book is that he comes up with ten or twelve really cool ideas that he'd like to see and then finds a way to work them all into the same book. Oh, and, uh, in, in the, you know, uh, the English professor is a uh, scholar of a poet named William Ashbless. And I guess the story behind this is that when um, Tim Powers and James Blaylock were in college, they joined this sort of campus poetry club. And as these things tend to be, the, the poetry was just really, really dreadful and all the poets would all kind of get together and tell tell each other how brilliant they all were. So these two guys got curious about just just trying to write the worst poetry that they could and turn it in and see if anyone would ever, if they could ever write anything so bad that people would actually point out that it actually wasn't that good. <laughs> um, but they didn't want to, you know, they didn't, they, they, they didn't want their own names on this really bad poetry that they would be turning in. So they made up this fictional person named William Ashbless. And so they would turn in the poetry under his name and, uh, after a while, you know, they kept turning in this poetry and nobody uh, had ever seen this guy. And so they made up this story about how uh, he was just this sort of like really disfigured student and really reclusive. And so he didn't want to come out, come out to these meetings. And so the character just kind of took on a life of his own and, and appears, you know, there's sort of references to him in, in various works by these guys and their friends. Okay, well, let's talk about this, uh, this recent Sherlock Holmes movie. Mm-hmm. Um I really, I really thought this was great. I think that if you didn't think that this was a fun time at the movies, you must be smoking crack (laughs) or at least injecting cocaine into yourself in a 7% solution. (laughs) Um, But, you know, uh, know, my dad really likes action movies and my mom won't watch anything that has even a hint of action or suspense or violence or anything like that. So every time I I go to visit my parents, my dad's always like, hey, you want to go see a movie? Are there, any, are there any James? He's kind of like shaking. He's like, are there any James Bond movies out? <laughs> and so, you know, this movie came out on Christmas Day. So we went to see it. And this was really like the perfect movie to go see with your dad <laughs> on Christmas <laughs> Day. But it's it's. I guess it's gotten a lot of criticism for being a departure from the Holmes stories. And, you know, I, I read a bunch of the Holmes stories when I was younger. And I read The Hound of the Baskervilles when I was in college. But, uh, you know, it was a while ago. And, and I'm not like chapter president of the uh, baker street irregulars or anything but i mean i have read the stories and then you know you, uh, you edited this anthology recently um the improbable adventures of sherlock holmes could you why don't you just talk about that a little bit tell people what that was
2: uh well so the improbable adventures of sherlock holmes the idea behind this anthology was to reprint the best sherlock holmes stories that were written sort of in the contemporary age you know not stories written by sir arthur conan doyle but by other people so, you know, Holmes has this famous quote that if you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. That That's in line with his very rational viewpoint, uh, a viewpoint that I share. But when I'm reading stories, I, I like the idea that the fantastic is possible. And so um, when I was putting together the anthology, you know, the first idea was just do the sort of fantastical adventures of Sherlock Holmes. But then I thought it might be more fun to mix Sherlock Holmes stories that fantastic element to them alongside ones that were where the solutions turn out to have a prosaic solution so that that way when you're reading the stories you don't know if it's going to resolve in a prosaic manner or if it's going to have a supernatural ending and um i mean i think that sort of sort of really fits with the idea of sherlock holmes because he was living in an age when a lot of people you know believed in a lot of supernatural things that or that we obviously would consider silly now that they might believe in them i mean Conan Doyle himself actually believed in fairies, even though it, it wasn't something that doyle uh, explored himself with the Sherlock Holmes stories, despite the fact that there's a story actually called The Adventure of the Sussex Vampire. There are hints of it in his stories, and uh so i, I think it was sort of a natural leap to uh you know for writers to explore it in uh in in actuality
1: yes yeah, so, i mean i you know I had helped out a little a little bit with this book, so I had read all the stories and I did some copywriting and uh you know helped out with some of the the header notes and things like that. And so, in the course of this, I'd done a bit of research into Sherlock Holmes, you know, right before this movie came out. And so it really seemed to me that a lot of the criticisms of these vast departures from the stories I didn't really I didn't agree with. Um, it was kind of reminding me of when um, you know when they rebooted James Bond with Casino Royale, I had I read the the Ian Fleming novel, uh, Casino Royale, right before that came out. And so then a lot of people were saying, like, oh, they totally changed who James Bond is. In this movie, he falls in love and he wants to stop being a spy. And that's not James Bond. Hmm. And I was like, really? That That's exactly what happened in the very first James Bond novel. And it really seemed like people were not so much saying that it was a huge departure from the fiction, but it was a huge departure from the mental image they had of the character from all these movies. And I thought there was a little bit of that going on with this, too. So I... Uh, I went through. I, I made a list here of some of the the criticisms of uh, of this of this movie not being true to Sherlock Holmes, and so we we can talk about some of these. But so, criticism number one is: doesn't Sherlock Holmes wear a deerstalker
2: cap? Right. Well, I mean that's a that's actually a common misconception in the Conan Doyle stories. I think uh, Sherlock Holmes may have worn one once, as, as someone explained to me when I actually asked about that too. A Victorian gentleman of Holmes's. Uh, Holmes's knowledge of social conventions and whatnot wouldn't wouldn't wear a deer stalker cap in in London or anything like that. It's like that's something that you would wear when you're out, you know, stalking deer uh, when you're out in the woods. Uh, somebody like Holmes would wear like a top hat or um or like a bowler. That's the sort of hat that he would wear, and not a deer stalker cap. And it's uh it's it's basically all because of uh there's there's some particular artist who painted like the the sort of iconic image of Sherlock Holmes that uh, became the mental image of, of most readers and, uh, and eventually, bl- uh, bled into film while, when they started, uh, you know, filming, uh, his adventures.
1: Okay. And so another criticism I've, I've heard a lot is, isn't Watson supposed to be a lard-ass?
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the funny thing too, is that, uh, Watson is, uh, actually supposed to be a bit of a ladies man and, uh, you know, he was a soldier. So, you know, he, he's never portrayed as, as anything but, in top physical condition and, uh, and, a handsome, handsome man, uh, uh, in, in Conan Doyle stories. So, um, it's, it's only began again because of, uh, one particular iconic, uh, image uh, from, uh, one of the film adaptations, uh, that people have that idea. And also, um, that sort of goes in line with, uh, Watson being this buffoon, you know, the, the portly buffoon is, is sort of how he's portrayed in, in, in some of these, uh, film adaptations. And so that became the public, uh, uh, perception of him, whereas um in the in the Conan Doyle stories, it's like he he's more like us in that you know he just he can't really follow Holmes's leaps of logic, but you know he's no he's not a dumbass or anything. He's a he's a sharp guy. It's just that Sherlock Holmes is so much smarter that he he's made to look a bit slow by comparison.
1: I was actually thinking about that this morning in terms of Watson not being super perceptive because actually the Sherlock Holmes stories are written by Watson, right? So they're his, Mm -hmm. first of all, they're his perception of reality. And then also he's writing them for publication, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe he might be whitewashing some of the the facts.
2: Sure, you know, I mean, um, if if he's being a savvy writer, you know, um, and he's writing these true crime stories as they would have been to him, um, you know, it makes sense that if, you know, the more he can glorify Sherlock Holmes, uh, the more interesting the stories are going to be to the public.
1: But I mean sort of what I'm getting at is that if you make a film, right, mm-hmm. then you're seeing presumably the true story, so it might oh. not match the
2: accounts. That's true, yeah. I guess maybe maybe Watson was a lard ass and uh <laughs> he just uh he wanted to make himself look better in print, so he uh he wrote himself as a ladies man.
1: Or like but, you know, there was this comedy um that came out when I was a kid called Without a Clue. Mm-hmm. And the premise of that is that Watson had uh had solved all the crimes himself. And had just made up this character named Sherlock Holmes because he thought mm-hmm. it would sell better. Mm-hmm. And then uh, eventually people demanded to actually see Sherlock Holmes. And so he has to hire an actor to like portray his friend Sherlock Holmes. And this this actor is just this dumb actor he hires. And and so it's just, you know, this this dumb actor has to pretend to be this brilliant uh, detective. Mm-hmm. But so like another criticism of the movie is that I've heard a lot is that Sherlock Holmes is not some sort of martial artist <laughs> as he's depicted in the, in the film.
2: I'm surprised. I'm surprised how many people actually are, are unaware of, of the fact that, uh, Sherlock Holmes was well known to have, uh, mastered the martial art of Bartitsu. <laughs> so, uh, it's this sort of cane fighting technique. If there's actually some debate about it in, in, uh, in, in home circles uh, because uh, Conan Doyle actually, he doesn't spell it Bartitsu. He, he spells it like Baritsu or something, which is, which doesn't exist as far as anyone can tell other than in, in Doyle's stories. But um, Bartitsu, uh, which it was around at the time is this sort of cane fighting technique, which, which they actually do, uh, you know, visually depict pretty well in the movie. Uh, they, they show him sort of whipping the cane around like, like a martial artist, you know? So um, that was a real thing. And, uh, but holmes is is described by conan doyle as being able to you know kick some serious butt you know it's just that as i as i point out in the introduction to the anthology it's like you know he can kick your ass he just rather outsmarts you
1: well how about this scene where we see sherlock holmes kind of like doing kind of <laughs> i don't know mma cage fighting sort of oh
2: uh-huh. yeah um i mean he's uh He's also supposed to be like a, basically like a gold gloves boxer. I mean, like, you know, it's like, so, uh, Bartitsu is mentioned, but then also, you know, he, he's supposed to have great pugilistic skills. And, and again, like in, in the adventures, uh, Conan Doyle wrote, he, he never really shows them being, uh, you know, used, but, uh, but it is mentioned that, you know, he definitely has that in his background. But, uh, I mean, you know, the MMA style fight is, is a bit extreme, but I mean, I think it, it kind of works in the, in the movie. Um, I mean, cause I think like, you know, The whole idea of Sherlock Holmes doing drugs is that his mind is like so busy that if he doesn't have any case or anything, he has to do something to distract himself. And so the drugs sort of numb his mental processes enough that he can actually get through the day. And and so I think like the idea of him doing this like sort of hardcore fighting can kind of serve some of the same purpose. Uh, Because, I mean, if he's so invested in this physical, rigorous physical activity, then you know, he, he can't. You know, his mind can't be running a million miles a minute with, uh, like, but with nothing to do. Uh, and also they kind of show how he's, I thought it was really cool how they sort of analyze sort of blow by blow, like how he's like sort of like a chess master playing against, uh, some newbie. Uh, <laughs> and it's just like he, he knows exactly what he's gonna do and he's just, he's just sort of playing, he's toying with this guy, even though he's like this big, gigantic Hulk. You know, once he decides what he's gonna do, it's like he just, he just executes it.
1: Yeah, and I did come across this quote from uh, the story, The Sign of the Four, where Holmes introduces himself to a prize fighter and he introduces himself as, quote, the amateur who fought three rounds with you at Allison's rooms on the night of your benefit four years back. And this um, prize fighter says, Oh, you're the one that has wasted your gifts you have. You might have aimed high if you had joined the fancy. And so, I mean, there is this, this idea that he does some sort of amateur boxing against people. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it does. I, I mean, I kind of. I could be wrong, but sort of my perception of, of Sherlock Holmes is this kind of this manic depressive sort of guy. And when he's on a case, he's totally that's what he lives for, and he's totally mm-hmm. in command and totally in charge and knows exactly what he's doing. And then when he doesn't have a case, he doesn't know what to do with himself and does engage in kind of this depressive um destructive sort of behavior.
2: That that just got me thinking of of, of the age of Sherlock Holmes, you know, because when he's uh in the sign of the four, when he's talking to this boxer you know he's he's talking about his amateur boxing which we would presume you know happened a couple of years earlier but like in the first Sherlock Holmes adventure uh a study in Scarlet you know um Holmes is basically just like right out of college you know so he's like probably in his early 20s and you know we don't necessarily think of that all the time I mean I guess because of the, of the film portrayals and so seeing an actor who's probably obviously older than that even if you know still young but the age thing is is actually one of probably the biggest discrepancies that I saw that was in the movie that they that nobody really talks about. I mean, you know, Sherlock comes in the movie is like, you know, sort of middle aged or something. I mean, was he about for I mean, how how old is Robert Downey Jr. about 45 or so? Yeah. I mean, obviously he he could have been playing the role younger, but you know, he's obviously not in his early 20s. Then again, Holmes had a very long career, so, I mean, they could have been trying to depict this at some point later in his career. Obviously, he and Holmes, he and Watson had uh, had already been uh, partners in crime for quite a long time at this point in the movie since uh, they're sort of uh, at the point where they're ready to split up.
1: You know, on Wikipedia, they mentioned that there there had been critics hostile to the departure from the source material, and they, they linked to two. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of read through them. And they didn't really, they, they complained about it. They're like, they made it all cool and fun and action-packed <laughs> and appealing. How and dare people. they? You know, that's not Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> and, and kind of, that's, you know, that's kind of an odd. It's like uh, the
2: same criticism Star Trek got.
1: Yeah. But as far as I could find actual sort of specific substantive criticisms, well, it was kind of funny reading this, these reviews because one guy was was complaining about how far removed it was from the source material and how they had just totally trampled this literary classic. And he's like, like, who's this woman? <laughs> she, she doesn't. She seems to have some mysterious past with Sherlock Holmes, and and just um, i I just I don't know. I can't take this guy seriously.
2: Well, I mean, how could you? I mean, that's such a crit- I mean, everybody who's read anything about Sherlock Holmes knows about Irene Adler. I mean,
1: well, the the, the dumbest one I thought from from this ga- same guy's review was he says this is supposed to be a Sherlock Holmes adventure, but Professor Moriarty's hardly in it at all.
2: <laughs> yeah, of course, uh, Moriarty was only in like one. Conan Doyle story so it's really kind of ridiculous to say oh well, hey where's Moriarty I mean how could you have Sherlock Holmes without Moriarty so it's it's completely ridiculous
1: um but then the other thing is is this this idea that how can how dare they introduce the idea of black magic into Sherlock mm -hmm. Holmes um I guess you talked about that a little bit but I I distinctly remember that in The Hound of the Baskervilles it's strongly Mm -hmm. implied that the the hound is a ghost dog oh yeah
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, in the Hounds of Baskervilles and um, and also, like, as I mentioned, the Adventure of the Sussex Vampire. I, I mean, you know, the possibility of there being a supernatural explanation existed in several of the home stories, if uh, certainly in those two. But, um, you know, I mean, it's completely ridiculous to complain that, oh, that the, the idea that there might have been black magic going on uh, could have never happened in a home story. No, I mean, that's not true at all. Um, and actually, that was one of the things I really liked about the movie is the way they they sort of present the idea of magic and as you're watching like you don't know if it's going to res- which way it's going to resolve I-, I don't know if i was to give a spoiler warning here or not i mean one of the things i was going to say is that I-, I felt like the direction to some degree was cheating in that it, it really uh, manipulated the audience in a way that was not playing entirely fair because the way the the way the events are portrayed it it kind of seems like oh well obviously this is magic
1: yeah, but but it's funny that you should mention the the solution being a cheat because that actually seems consistent with Arthur Conan Doyle stories to me too. I mean, I always mm-hmm. certainly my impression of the stories is that at the end you're, you weren't ever given a fair chance to figure out the mm-hmm. solution. That oh, you know, you're just supposed to be amazed by Holmes and true and
2: you know that's true. I mean, yeah, the um the the cases themselves, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, the uh, with with the mysteries, uh, I, I sort of give that more slack. Because Holmes is supposed to be so brilliant that, you know, it's like, well, obviously we're not brilliant detectives, so we wouldn't be able to figure that out. You know, I mean, that's a, that's certainly a fair point. Um, but I mean, as far as the, the mystery itself goes as well, I mean, that was one of the other issues I had with the movie. I mean, like you, I actually did really like it. I did have fun watching it. Uh, I mean, I didn't have serious issues with the uh, with the portrayals. I did think that the the case itself was not sort of worthy of a Holmes narrative. It's like you know, it's kind of dumb and or dumbed down, I should say. You know, it's a very Hollywood version of of a of a Holmes story, but uh, you know, it manages it manages to work pretty well. And, and like I said, I mean, I really like the way they sort of play with that idea of the, that that the black magic could be true, or you know, maybe this is some elaborate scheme. You know, I mean, it's uh, it works out really well. Well,
1: it's it's, it's kind of funny. I noticed that. The um the villain in the movie is is Lord Blackwood, and I guess Blackwood's magazine was the main competitor to the Strand huh. the Strand magazine that uh, <laughs> okay. you know where where um Conan Doyle published all the Sherlock Holmes stories and he mm-hmm. was always submitting stuff to Blackwoods, and they would never accept anything that you know, <clears> he sent them so mm-hmm. it's kind of funny that they made that the, the villain in the uh, yeah. in the story I
2: yeah that think- must that must have been on purpose
1: I was thinking that uh I, it gave me a really brilliant idea for a. A sinister villain who I'm sure will haunt literature for generations to come. <laughs> uh, his name is Lord Ferdinand Nigel Essif. He sometimes goes by his initials F.N. Esif. <laughs> so I mean, he's very evil. But I I want to point out that there's still time. You know, he he might turn out to be one of those villains who you know has a change of heart and becomes good in the end.
2: Okay, so there's going to be a whole bunch of people listening to this who have no idea what you just said. <laughs> the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction uh, shortened. Uh, Known by a shorter name as Fantasy and Science Fiction, it's sometimes further shortened to FNSF, and so that's what Dave was ripping on there. Um, so how
1: about, I mean, the the thing that was most concerning to people watching the trailer, I think, before the movie came out was it, it kind of made Sherlock Holmes look like he it was sort of like John Belushi from Animal <laughs> House is Sherlock Holmes. Oh, yeah. What did you think about oh.
2: Oh, I mean, I, I was I was totally on board with that criticism before I saw the movie. I mean, because like, uh, um, the thing is that the trailer takes that scene completely out of context, like in this in the movie, it's perfectly fine. I mean, you know, the, the trailer shows him shows Sherlock Holmes sort of naked on a bed with his hands tied to the bedpost. And he's only got a pillow covering his privates. And he sort of he makes some uh, lewdish comment to the maid, the chambermaid that comes in in the trailer it seems like oh god what have they done to sherlock holmes you know like that's so that's such an important aspect of his character that he's like just completely uninterested in women but um in this in the movie in context it actually works really well and i mean that seems that seems fine to me um how it's portrayed in the movie so oh. and you know uh, otherwise you know he's pretty he's pretty well in line with uh the homes we we all know and love as far as his love life is concerned or lack of lack of love life it's the same deal where, you know, Irene Adler's the the woman, you know, the, the only woman who's ever really uh, attracted any interest from him. And uh, he's just like this misanthrope otherwise.
1: But, uh, I mean, speaking of Holmes' lack of interest in women, um, you know, Robert Downey Jr. created a huge hullabaloo <laughs> before the movie by sort of, I don't, I didn't, I missed exactly what he said, but sort of implying that Holmes and Watson were m- more than just friends, if you know <laughs> what I'm saying. Um <laughs> And I guess the uh, whoever is in control of the Sherlock Holmes estate was so upset by this that she was talking about withdrawing permission to do a sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sure that Sherlock Holmes was in public domain, but apparently mm-hmm. he's not.
2: Yeah, no, it's not. Uh, it's not completely in public domain yet. Some of the stories are, but um, the characters, uh, you know, the, the continuing characters that appear in the in some of the later stories, some of the later stories are not in the public domain. So, the estate still has like rights to the characters in the situation, so you can you can publish a version of uh a study in scarlet and you can you know you don't have to pay anyone any royalties or anything but if you want to create derivative works based on sherlock holmes um you know, you still have to get permission so like for instance, when we did the anthology, we had to get permission even even though actually we were only reprinting stuff that had already existed elsewhere, although it's only in the United States in the u k and in Canada, Sherlock Holmes is entirely in the public domain.
1: And actually if 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 people are interested in the issue of Holmes and Watson, whether there's anything going on there, uh mm. there was actually a really good article on Tor.com by Arachne Jericho about that. So if you're if you're interested in that topic, uh check that out. Uh when I was trying to research this movie, I just, you know, typed in Sherlock Holmes into uh Rotten Tomatoes, I think. And mm-hmm. came up with, you know, the 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 most recent entry, it just says Sherlock Holmes twenty ten. And mm-hmm. so I clicked on that, assuming that that, that must be the movie, you know, not thinking that it actually came out uh, a few days before the end of 2009. Mm-hmm. But there's this Sherlock Holmes 2010 movie, you know, just obviously hoping people will be confused, like like I was, and think that this is the the big movie that they've heard so much hype about. And I guess it's this. Well, here, let me read you the uh, the synopsis <laughs> for this movie. It sounds like a real classic. Let's see if I can bring. it <laughs> Okay, yeah. So so there's this outfit called Asylum Film, and so this is their Sherlock Holmes. The film takes place in London sometime in the 19th century. Sherlock Holmes and his colleague, Dr. Watson, are called upon to help track down and ultimately capture spring Jack, who is committing crimes across London through the use of giant monsters such as giant octopus and several dinosaurs, <laughs> and a steam-powered body armor that permits him to carry out crimes without fear of capture. And That
2: actually uh, sounds awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess this this is a real steampunk, uh, uh-huh. Sherlock Holmes. But I guess, you know, this, this company just makes... Movie after movie after movie with titles very similar to recent blockbusters. And I mean if you just I'm just looking at now at their their list of there's a list on Wikipedia of their movies next to the <laughs> the equivalent movie. Let me just read a couple of these. When War of the Worlds came out, they made one called H.G Wells's War of the Worlds. When the Da Vinci Code came out, they made one called the Da Vinci Treasure pirates of the caribbean pirates of treasure island snakes on a plane snakes on a train i mean it just goes on and on and on and on transformers transmorphers and so i mean they actually almost got me once on the uh (laughs) itunes store there are um you know you can rent movies and the icons are really small and so uh you know there was this recent remake of the day the earth stood still and so i'm just scrolling down and you see like the day the earth stopped (laughs) and you know i'm like wait a minute So so just for an instant, I was like, oh, maybe I'll watch that one. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, it was science fiction. Maybe I'll check it out. I'm like, wait, The the Day the Earth stopped. That's not right. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, obviously, I I know the title, but I can imagine just normal people could easily download that movie thinking that that was Mm -hmm. the the recent big budget movie that came out, you know.
2: But um, actually, speaking of this company and, and like, the Transmorphers, uh, it it really couldn't be any worse than Transformers, could it? I mean... (laughs)
1: The script well, is probably better. Well, but I, I think they make these things all for like a $1 million budget or something. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as bad as Transformers is, at least the special effects are had, mm-hmm. had a lot of money spent on them. I mean, when they're talking about a giant octopus and steam-powered <laughs> suits and a dino- dinosaurs attacking London and stuff, I'm imagining, like, how can you do this for under a million dollars? You know, those, those dinosaurs, they drive a hard bargain, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't work for cheap.
2: So wait, so what? what is what is their Sherlock Holmes movie actually called? Is it called Sherlock Holmes and Doyle Sherlock Holmes? or No, it's just called Sherlock Holmes. But that's what Guy Ritchie's one is called. Yeah. So that's exactly the same it's title. Like the same title, yeah. They're, they're not even trying now. They're not even <laughs> trying to differentiate.
1: Yeah, so we're, we're just about out, out of time now. There's just one other steampunk-related thing I wanted to mention. Apparently the first full-scale museum exhibition of steampunk art is showing right now in Oxford, England, um, at the Museum of the History of Science. It's gonna. It's running through February twenty first. Uh, this just looks really cool. I'm. I'm jealous of anyone who lives in uh, Oxford. But so I don't know if there is anyone out there in in Oxford. Uh, think about going to this, and if you do, uh, post a comment and let us know. Uh, let us know how what it's like.
2: Actually, I wanted to add one thing too. Is uh, if if any of you listening uh, don't know much about steampunk, but but you're intrigued by it and you want to learn more about it. Um, really, a, a great book to pick up is uh, the anthology Steampunk, edited by Jeff and Ann Um It's sort of the uh, definitive uh, Steampunk anthology, uh, collecting the best of best of the best of Steampunk. And they're actually working on a follow-up volume to that called Steampunk Reloaded. So, you know, if you enjoy that, uh, look for Steampunk Reloaded to come out uh, next year or so, I think. And that was
1: our show. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Be sure to join us next week when we'll interview Steve Ely, host of the popular Escape Pod Science Fiction Short Story Podcast. See you then.
0: The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Tour.com. For this episode's show notes, or to subscribe to this podcast, visit tour.com and click on Podcasts. For more information about your hosts, visit JohnJosephAdams.com or davidbarcurrently.com. Music and voiceover produced by Edsville 9 Entertainment.
1: If you've enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.